0: We want to jump back into the seven churches of Revelation and um, talk this morning about the church at Philadelphia. It's interesting as, as I've gotten back and, and, this year or this trip especially, it seems like jet lag at first wasn't an issue, but then day two, man, it hit. Uh, ever had jet lag before? It just, you, you feel there. And, and, it's sort of funny around the house in the afternoon, especially we'd be sitting doing something and all of a sudden I just fall asleep and the kids have a little radar and they're like, dad's asleep. <laughs> oh yeah. And you would think that it'd be like, okay, let's be quiet then. Let dad, <laughs> everyone with kids just laughed. It was like this radar. They're like, dad's asleep. Yeah. <laughs> and there was no more sleeping. And they they are helping me get past my jet lag. But jet lag just has a way of of draining you to where it's like, okay, I don't know if I can do much of anything. And and yes, it's a physical thing and trying to get back on schedule here in California time and get the the body rhythms and cycles changed over. But I was thinking through as I was studying um, about the church at Philadelphia, how many times we sort of feel a little jet lagged in our spiritual lives. Feel just a little blah. Feel like I don't know if I can continue. I just want to, I just want to sleep. I just want to stop. I just want to give up. And, and in our spiritual walk, in our service of God, so many things can, can cause that. And so many things can discourage us and make us tired and feel like giving up. And some of you this morning, I would better sit in here saying, I don't even know if I can continue. I feel like I'm drowning in all the things I have to do. I feel like I can't even continue in ministry or ministering to my family or whatever it is. And this morning, the church at Philadelphia provides words of encouragement. It's a church that was struggling with much of those same things. a church that was faithful and persevered. And obstacle after obstacle after obstacle seemed like it was in their path. And they just didn't see the results. They didn't see effectiveness. And they're at a point when we come to him and come to them in this passage where the encouragement is don't give up. Don't give up. Let's change our focus. And this morning I think that's a perfect message for, for us as a church. Whether you're in that place. And if you're not, I bet you know someone that is. And needs encouragement. So turn with me to Revelation chapter three, verse seven. Revelation chapter three, verse seven. And we want to explore what it meant for them to be faithful and what motivated them to be able to be faithful and what are God's promises to those that persevere. Incredible passage of encouragement from this church. Revelation seven starting at, or three starting at verse seven. I want to read the whole letter and then we'll break it, break it apart and study it and enjoy it. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Neither shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Dear Lord God, our Father, as we study Your Word this morning, I pray that Your words to the church at Philadelphia will will burn in our hearts. Will encourage our hearts, Lord. Will, will give us strength to continue, even at times when we don't feel like it, Lord. It would help focus our attention on what needs to be focused on, on You and Your greatness and Your power, God. Use Your Word this morning in Jesus' name, Amen. So as, as we have been doing in your notes, we have different categories of of this letter, different structure of the letter, and we always start with who it's to. And we notice in verse 7 there, he starts by saying, And to the angel of the church at Philadelphia. And some of you might be thinking, I know where Philadelphia is. It's just, you know, 2,000 miles that way, and they have a baseball team, and we can go on and on and on. That's not the Philadelphia we're talking about this morning. On the map up here, you see that we have the, the seven churches. And we started here with Ephesus, then we went up to, to Smyrna, and then Pergamum, and Thyatira, and then down to Sardis, and now we jump over here to Philadelphia, a little more inland, and this roughly follows a postal route of the time, and, and one of the, the typical roadways of the time. And so Ephesus, is a, or Philadelphia rather, is a little more inland. And just some things about, about Philadelphia that helps us understand it. It's the newest city out of all the seven cities. So it's the most recently founded. It, by this time, was only, you know, about 300 years old. Fairly new, right? Founded in about 189 B.C. by either um, Eumenes, king of per- Pergamum, or his younger brother, Attalus Philadelphius. Sound familiar? And, and they don't know which ones founded it, but the love between these brothers was what they were known for. In fact, at one point there was a time where they could have come to battle against each other, and the older brother stood up for the younger brother and said, no, I'm not going to do this. That's my brother and I love him. And so we're not sure which of them actually founded the city, but it was named because of that brotherly love. And Philadelphia, we know, means brotherly love. And it it was literally about the love two brothers had that founded this city. It's near Sardis, as you see, about 30 miles or so east, southeast, and uh, you know, maybe about here to LA. So you get an idea of how far it is, although they didn't get in their car and drive. They would walk it. And so it was just about a day's walk, 25 to 30 miles between the two. It was on the eastern end of a broad valley. And so if you, you picture this valley, Coming right here between Sardis and Philadelphia. And this is on the eastern end of a broad fertile valley up on a hill. And so that allowed, that allowed Philadelphia to be a, a city that could be garrisoned, that could protect this passageway. The valleys were their roads. And so it was a great roadway between the east and the west. In fact, Philadelphia was known as the gateway to the east. And so all of the cities here, On this side and the things that came into the ports would often go through Philadelphia because this was a major road then to go on to the various cities to the east. And so it was an important city even though it was a small city. It was on the main trade route to the east to Mysia, Lydia, Phrygia and some of those cities. As such, in your notes I just have a couple of phrases that you can put down to remember the city. It was a gateway city or a missionary city gateway city or a missionary city. The thought of the day as, as Greek Hellenism was being spread was that Philadelphia would be a place where that could spread to the east. And so they were charged with being missionaries for Hellenism and the, the Greek language to the cities to the east. And, and actually they were quite successful as some of the cities to the east dropped their language and ended up um, coming into line with the empire. That'll come up a little bit later as we think about what God has for this city. It was also a small city. Smaller population than any of the other seven cities um, for, for a variety of reasons. One of the reasons was because they had to deal with earthquakes. They dealt with earthquakes frequently. In fact, in AD 17, there was a huge earthquake that did affect Laodicea and some of the other cities. But the epicenter was Philadelphia and it just destroyed Philadelphia. Walls fell down, the entire city fell down, to the extent that all of the people living in the city said, enough of that, we're moving out to the country, where there's not as many pillars and stone roofs and things that can fall on us and kill us. And and so they all spread out to different farmlands and started doing more agriculture because there was safety in that. Because of that, the city stayed small. Through various times, because it was the epicenter, they were there were daily aftershocks, There was another um, earthquake in A.D. 60. And so, you know, sort of like living in California, just with a little bit more earthquakes and a little less structure that could prevent it from falling down on your head. And so you could see where they would spread out. Philadelphia was also known for grapes and wine. That was their major trade. Um, It was built in a region on that eastern side of that valley where there had been a lot of volcanic activity, and I'm not going to pretend to know why this helps grapes and vineyards, but the volcanic soil actually was very effective to grow really good grapes. And so this was the wine country of the area. That's their trade. And that also played into their religion as the the major god that they worshipped was Dionysus, who was the patron god of wine. Okay, And so trade was tied into beliefs. And so if you wanted your grapes to do well, you worshipped the god of grapes and wine. Make sense? No, it doesn't, but, but understanding where they were coming from, it does. And so that's a little bit of the background of what was happening. The, um, there was a powerful Jewish presence in the city as well, as we're going to see from the text, similar, similar to Smyrna, which we talked about a few weeks back. And so this little church, this little city with a little church in it, was a missionary city for Hellenism. It was a small city, dealt with earthquakes, and they had a variety of different beliefs. A couple of pictures that we have for you. We don't have a lot of excavations of Philadelphia as well. Same thing as we saw at some of the other cities. There is a modern city built on top of it. And people just don't like their living rooms broken up to dig underneath them. And so we just have a few places where we've dug. This is a view of the valley from the high place of the city, the Acropolis, where they would have temples and worship. So you get an idea of how fertile that valley might be and some of this, um surrounding scenery. This is what they think was a stadium of the time, to where you could have seating on both sides, you could have your games down the middle. To us, it might look like hills, but they haven't excavated it. They uh, accept just a little bit to know that it's a stadium. This is looking up to the top of the hill where they would have their temples, Philadelphia Acropolis. And I know if you're expecting lots of pillars and it to look like it did 2,000 years ago, this is what we have. They also had a theater there, as we've seen at several of those other cities, and they've excavated a little bit of the stage. I think I have another picture from another angle. There's another angle going into the stage. And so they had a theater. So it was a small town, but... Um, a Hellenistic town, so at the edge, the cutting edge of culture of the time. This is not what it looked like back then. This is what it looks like now. And so you can see the modern city um, there from the Acropolis, from the top there. Had to throw in a picture of the grapevines, which is still a common industry of the area. Isn't that interesting? It It was good for grapevines back then, and it's still good for grapevines back then. Just about four or five years um, before th- the letter was written, it was interesting that um, the Roman emperor of the time, Domitian, he ordered that half the vineyards of the area be destroyed. Now, now picture if that is your trade, that is your livelihood. The guy in charge comes and says, "We're gonna, we're gonna destroy half of them." And there's all kinds of debate about why some think that he wanted them to plant crops for the Roman army um, however the, that was problematic because the soil while it was good for grapes wasn't good for much of anything else and so they lost their livelihood another theory is that he was actually protecting the, the wineries of Italy and there's a little po- bit of politics happening here but whatever it was this town already small already struggling had half of their industry taken away And that's the setting that the church gets this letter. A setting where there was a lot of obstacles to ministry, a lot of obstacles to life, a lot of frustrations and just sort of hanging on. And so we have words about perseverance to a small church facing many obstacles. Let's read on in verse 7. That gives us a little bit of a background of the church here. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One... The true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. So we get to the section of the characteristics of Christ. Who is it from? And in each of the letters, different characteristics of Christ have been stressed that apply to that church. And it's great to to read these and understand who Jesus is and what he is stressing for this church that is in need of some encouragement. And three things are really stressed there. The first is two aspects of his character. His character is holy and true. The words of the Holy One. And we saw as we went through the attributes of God, holy is altogether other, altogether different. And so that is a statement of the deity of Christ. In Mark 1.24, the demons say, I know who you are to Jesus, the Holy One of God. And it was a statement that he is God Almighty. And so Jesus starts by saying, I'm the Holy One. I'm God Almighty. And the next phrase, I'm the true one. The true one. And when we see true, it means genuine or real, reliable. And so Jesus, right from the starts, to help this beleaguered little church, is saying, I am God, and I am reliable and genuine. You can trust me. And he's redirecting their focus from their troubles, from the, the things that are around them, to his character and who he is. Christ is completely other and can be counted on no matter what the difficulties. But then you have that last phrase of verse 7, who has the key of David, who hope opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. No one opens. And the last aspect that he is stressing about himself there is that he has kingly, final authority. He has kingly, final authority. This phrase is taken from Isaiah 22.22 and a story of, of the, the history of Israel. And at this point in Israel, there is a steward in Jerusalem. Some might say like a secretary of state or a guardian of Jerusalem, but this man would be the man that you went through to get to the king. He had all of the king's authority. He held all access to the king. And so this was one of the most important men of the time. And we know that that Shebna was the name of this man. And in Isaiah twenty-two twenty-two, the prophecy is he's going to be gone. He's not doing a good job. God is going to replace him and is going to bring a faithful man to that position. And that man was Eliakim. And so we see in Isaiah twenty-two, twenty-two, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And so when we think of keys and, and getting the keys, we think of authority. We think of ability. Okay? It, it's not that different now. I mean, say a group of friends are going, we're going to all drive somewhere. What do they fight over? Who gets the keys? Why? Be in charge. You get to drive, okay? You know, we, we all come as a family into the, the family room to watch TV. What do you fight over? Remote control. remote control. I was hoping my boys would never get to that point. And now they're like, Dad, I want the remote. Oh, no. <laughs> Why? Because it's an issue of control. It's an issue of authority. Okay, keys are, are like that. When it says keys to the kingdom, he is saying... This is the authority of the king himself. This is the authority of access to the king. This is the authority of the king's words. And so when we read the one who has the key of David, and David represented the kingly line throughout Israel, represented the kingdom that will have no end, that is a statement of Christ's complete divine kingly authority. And it says, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. Again, if I can open something and no one will shut, what does that say about me? It says I have authority. I have more authority than anyone else because no one else can shut it. If I can shut something and no one else can open, that means my power is greater than anyone else. And so the words from Christ is He is the Holy and True One with authority over all. And that is the foundation for being able to deal with discouragement. The foundation for being able to persevere. To be faithful. It's in the character of God that He is unstoppable. He is in control. And I can trust Him because He is true and He is God. And that's the starting point of the letter to the Church of Philadelphia. Perseverance principle number one that you have there. Remember that Christ is God and is reliable and unstoppable. Remember that Christ is God and is reliable and is unstoppable. That's the God we serve. And as we step out in faith and as we do His work, He is reliable and unstoppable and that gives us confidence, that gives us encouragement to keep going because we're not going under our own authority and our own power, but under the one who has the key of David. We move on to, to verse 8 and we see the commendation to the church. What are they doing well? And verse 8 says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And in the commendation, Christ commends them because they have faithfully obeyed and stood up for Christ. They have faithfully obeyed and stood up for Christ. But let's dig into the the two different parts of this verse which are going to set up the rest of the letter. And, And you see at the beginning, behold, I have set... Who's talking there? Christ, right? And you're going to see that phrase at least four or five more times in this short letter. I have blank. I have blank. I have blank. What is he saying? Who's doing the work? God is doing the work. And so in each of these, we're going to say, what is our responsibility? What is God's promise? What does he say he will do? And so let's start by taking the second half of the verse, which is what he commends them for. It's what he expects from his church. What is our responsibility? And we get to perseverance principle number two in your notes. No ministry is insignificant or ineffective when God is behind it and we faithfully follow Him. No ministry is insignificant or ineffective when God is behind it and we faithfully follow Him. So in the second half of that verse, we see the faithfully follow Him part. I know that you have but little power. And again, in this small city, this is probably a small church struggling to survive. We're going to see in verse 9 that they're fighting against the Jewish influence of of the region. And the Jews are probably excluding them from the synagogue. And so there's pressure from that. But the obstacle here is we're small. We're tiny. We can't do anything for God. Have you ever felt that way? Man, I'm just one person. Yeah, I'd love to serve God, but nothing I do will make a difference. Nothing I do will matter. And and Christ is addressing that. I know that you have but little power. You have little strength to oppose the evil there. You have a small amount of resources. Your budget's not that big. But, but what did they do? And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Amen. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. Kept my word is, is having our beliefs and our obedience line up with the holy word of God. It's studying it and not, not denying it. It's coming to God's word and saying, I will obey the commands that are there. And so even though they were small, obedience is possible. Obedience is possible. Because it's following God's Word. They have not denied Christ's name. They have stood up for Christ. They have not bowed to emperor worship. They have not given up the name or the the label of of Christ. But their words and, and actions have been faithful to Him. And so what we see is a church that has been faithful in the little things. Faithful in the little things that have taken the opportunities set before them, that have taken God's Word and have obeyed and followed it. See, the key to effectiveness is faithfulness, not prominence. It's faithfulness, not numbers. We never know how God will use little acts of service, little acts of faithfulness. And the obstacle of I'm just too too little, we're too small, we're just not effective, is focusing on us, not on God. Because even a small group, as we strive to serve God, as we minister for Him, we are ministering under God's power. And whether we are one person, ten people, 200 people, or 50,000 people, none of that changes how big God is. None of that changes his power and his authority and his ability. He is just as able with one person as he is with 50 people. And do you see how he's, he's focusing their focus on God's power rather than on their ability? Because our responsibility is to be faithful to God, to the opportunities he has given to his word, and leave the rest up to him. And so what is God's work? We said no ministry is insignificant or ineffective when God is behind it. And we see the first half of verse 8. Behold, I have set before you an open door. And I have set, as I mentioned, is a specific verb that says it's His action. It's His work. It's His gift, actually. And I have set before you an open door. There's all kinds of discussion of what is open door. And there's two major theories. One is that this is an open door to the kingdom that they can look forward knowing that they will have entrance into the kingdom, that they won't be excluded. And that's a possibility, and there's probably some of that there. But as we look through the entirety of the New Testament and understand how this phrase is used, it's used over and over and over to describe opportunities for ministry. Opportunities for evangelism. Opportunities for them to be a missionary city, not for Greek Hellenism, but for the Word of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16.9, For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Many obstacles, but a door has been opened to me. Colossians 4, three. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison. And so the best way to look at open door here is to say these are ministry opportunities that God has put in front of the church that He will enable, that He will provide for, and He will cause to be effective. It's all His work. What's our job? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. To see what God is doing and to come in line with it and be faithful to Him and His Word. And so what a statement to this church. What an encouragement. You're small. You have little power. I know that's discouraging. But I have set before you an open door. You never know what that might accomplish. See, so we tend to, to to switch roles here. It's easy to try to discover our own ministry and what I want God to do and where I want God to work. And we move forward and we 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 just are like a bull in a, a China store. Which I, yeah, that. MythBuster said that's not really true, but uh, we just charge ahead, not concerned about what God is opening up doors for, but what I want. And we switch roles because I'm just called to be faithful, to follow God's leading, to serve Him, whether or not I see how it will work out, whether or not I see the wisdom of the plan, knowing that God is providing the wisdom for the plan. We discover that God uses small doses of faithfulness to yield great opportunities. Never think that your contribution is too small. D.L. Moody told a story of a passenger on an Atlantic steamer who lay in his bunk, storms going on outside, he's seasick, he can barely move, and he suddenly hears a cry man overboard! May God help that poor fellow, he prayed. There's nothing I can do. I'm sick. And then he thought, well, maybe I can at least make it to the window and put my lantern in the window. Maybe that will help a little bit. So he did so. The man was finally rescued. And the next day, he's telling the story. And he said, you know, I was going down into the water the last time. there was just dark everywhere. And someone put a light in a porthole. And that light shone on my hand, and a sailor in the lifeboat grabbed it and pulled me in. A little light, all he could do, and God used that to save a life. Never underestimate what God can do with a little faithfulness. He wants us to to follow him. No matter how crazy his work is, no matter how God-sized his work is, because it's about his power, and not our power. And so we see the second perseverance principle. No ministry is insignificant or ineffective when God is behind it and we faithfully follow Him. Never think what you do here is insignificant. Whether it be watching kids in the nursery, whether it be sweeping up a a floor, whether it be standing up here and, and leading something, whether it be working with kids in Awana, God will use us when we are faithful. I can remember seeing some, some kids that I had been an Awana leader for many, many years ago. And five, ten years later, they came running up to me. Hi, Pastor Ron. How you doing? You know, that, that meant a lot to me that you did that. And I can remember back at the time thinking it's Wednesday night again. <laughs> really? I think I'm a little sick because I didn't see any fruit. I didn't see that God was using it, and it was hard, and it was discouraging, and I felt like it was getting nowhere. And ten years later, Pastor Ron, that meant a lot to me, that you spent time with us. You never know. Don't ever think that our contributions are too small for our God to use. We get to the next category, and often at this point in the letter, there's the criticism And as we look at this letter, there is no criticism. Like we saw with Smyrna, there is just commendation and encouragement. And so we'll move on to the command and the instruction that God gives in verses 9-11. to And the command that He gives is don't give up, hold fast. Don't give up, hold fast. Continue on continuing. Because I am God and I will give you the strength. Couple of principles out of these verses. We'll, we'll look at those and read the verses that go with them. Principle number three. Don't get discouraged. God provides the victory for the faithful. Don't get discouraged. God provides the victory for the faithful. Let's read verse nine together. Behold, I will make. Did you catch that again? I will. Whose work is it? God's work. Okay. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie behold i will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that i have loved you and again like we talked about in smyrna we have a heavy jewish presence here and they were they were controlling the synagogue and as christians would come to christ the jews would say well You're not fully a Jew then. To be fully a Jew, you have to follow all of the Jewish customs. You have to do what Jews do. And they were excluding Christians who believed in in this false Messiah to them. And and this is why God calls them a liar. He, He says that they lie because they are saying the Messiah has not come. Jesus is not the Messiah. And we are still waiting for Him. And that's a lie. Because Jesus has come and He is the Messiah. And the Christians are now the true believers. They are the true family of God because they are following Christ. So there's this sense of superiority with the Jews and this this rejection of the Christians. And so not only are they feeling the pressure of being small, but now they are being criticized, they are being piled on against, they are being excluded from things. And I can only imagine the difficulty it is to be in a small community when you're excluded from community gatherings. When you're told that you are following a lie. And so Christ here in verse 9 gives them a promise. He says, I'll take care of it. Don't be discouraged. God provides the victory for the faithful. He says, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And the idea here, some have said, well, maybe that's salvation. I I don't think this is salvation in this point. I think it's vindication. I think it's God proving to them what's right or wrong. If it's salvation, whose feet would they be bowing to? Christ's. I think this is an issue of God will eventually show them that they are wrong in the final judgment. And He will vindicate His people for following Christ. And so these people that were harassing and putting them down, in the end, will know the truth. And I love the phrase that Christ used. Behold, I will make them come down, come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. They will learn that you were doing what was dear to my heart, that you were in relationship with me. Now keep in mind to the Jewish people this would have been atrocious because one of the prophecies in Isaiah was that all the Gentiles would come and bow down before their feet. That the Gentiles would would realize that these were the people of God and stop harassing them. And Christ is just turning that upside down and saying now salvation is for all. Circumcision is circumcision of the heart in Romans 2. And my people are the people that believe that I am their Messiah and I am their God and have accepted me as their Savior. And in the end, people will know that. What an encouragement to a people that have been put down and harassed. And so the idea is don't get discouraged at what people say. Don't get discouraged at criticism. Criticism. Now, yes, we should evaluate criticism and we should, we should find the truth in it. But in this case, there's no truth in it and they're driving people away from Christ. And the challenge is to persevere through that. Small steps to keep, keep going when you feel like quitting. Spurgeon said, by perseverance, the snail reached the ark. I love that. One little inch at a time and the snail made it in the ark. So God is providing the victory. God is providing the vindication. Again, we switch the roles here, and we want to defend ourselves and stand for our rights and prove that we're right. Is that what God tells them to do? He says, be faithful. As we we read on in the next verse, be faithful, let me do the work. So our challenge here is how can I be faithful, not successful? See, success we usually define in terms of what other people think and what other people, how other people view us. The church at Philadelphia, if you went by that, was completely unsuccessful. People were saying, you're not even of the house of God anymore. You can't even come in and worship God anymore. And God's challenge to them is evaluate by faithfulness, not worldly success. Don't get discouraged. God provides the victory in the end for those who are faithful. You don't have to defend yourself. Let God do that. He is much better at it. Principle number four. Don't worry. God gives protection and strength to the faithful. Don't worry. God gives protection and strength to the faithful. What would you try if you knew it couldn't fail just think about that think about that in ministry but think about that in real life okay some of you wouldn't do this anyway but would you would you climb the side of a mountain if you knew that you were in gear and that you were completely safe and nothing could happen to you sure why not some of you are like no (laughs) i get five feet off the ground and we're done but let's just say that you weren't afraid of heights. Now, now would you climb that same, let's say, 2,000-foot mountain with no gear? Knowing that one little slip and you fall to your death? No, it changes what we're willing to try, right? And we come to verses 10 and 11, and God is encouraging them by saying, I will take care of you. I will keep you. Don't worry, God gives protection and strength to the faithful. Let's read those verses together. Because you have kept My word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And God here again takes their their focus off their little troubles here, off the troubles right in front of them, and says, bigger picture, I am going to protect you from the trials that are coming. And I am coming again to be with you for all eternity. I've got your back. Trust me. This is a very interesting verse when we talk about eschatology and in times. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. Again, what's their job? Faithfulness. Patient endurance. And then you see, I will keep you. I am coming soon. The the whole passage screams, you be faithful and I will do the rest. But I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. What in the world is he talking about? Now here, as opposed to some of the other churches where he's talked about local trials, here he's talking about a much bigger picture. Do you see the scope of, of the trials that he's talking about? The whole world, okay? Pretty much covers it. And so he's saying, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming to the whole world. And what he's probably referencing here is pretty much the rest of the book of Revelation. The tribulation, the seven years of God pouring out judgment to try to bring people back to himself, to try to wake them up. And he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming to the whole world. There's all kinds of debates of what I will keep you means. Some have said, well, that means he will protect us through it. And if you're, you're um, post-trib and your you're view is that Christ will return at the end of the tribulation, that's the interpretation of this verse you would say. He will protect through it, much like he did with the children of Israel and the plagues during the Exodus, or at the beginning of the Exodus, that God protected them. Not all of the effects happened on the children of Israel, and he guided them through it. But others, and myself included, would say that the wording here just doesn't lend itself to that because the wording in the Greek is I will protect you out of, not through. And so the wording here looks as if God is going to take the church out of the world before this intense period of trial, before the tribulation. It's the picture we see in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And so we, we, we don't have time to really dig into this for another couple of hours, but there's all kinds of theories on both sides of this. But I would argue that this, whole, this supports a, a pre-tribulational rapture of the church that God will take His church out. Because as we read on in verse verse 10 there, verse 11, um, 10, sorry, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And that phrase is used elsewhere in God's word of the heathen, of the unbelievers that are still on earth. Um, both the trying portion of it that He's going to test them and challenge them, as well as the the reference to those dwelling on the earth. And so while that's not a belief that I would die for, someone else, a a godly brother, may disagree with me on that and say, well, no, that's through. I'm fine with that. This isn't essential to our salvation. It's a distinctive. But I think the verse gives us an idea that we will be taken out before the Great Tribulation. And what an encouragement that would be. To them, what an encouragement that would be that says, I am going to judge and you'll be safe. In verse 11, you see the imminence of Christ's return, which is also encouraging. I'm coming soon. Just hold fast a little longer. And I picture someone in a precarious position, maybe on the side of that same mountain, just holding on and a rescuer saying, you can hold on just a little bit more because I'm coming to take care of you as we look ahead to Christ's return, we look ahead with joy and with hope because He's going to come back. And our challenge is how will He find us? Will He find us faithful? Will He find us doing what we are called to do? A locomotive engineer was talking about his first assignment. He was running freight trains across rural Massachusetts. Not much there. In the middle of the night, they were passing through another deserted crossing. And, and the young apprentice said to the, the engineer that was mentoring him, this doesn't make sense to blow the whistle. No one's used this junction in 10 years, I bet. The veteran replied, you're, you're probably right. But you never know when that person's coming back. From 10 years before. And the the veteran was reminding him, we still are to be faithful because you never know. You never know. And for us, Christ can come back today. He could come back this afternoon. Wouldn't that be incredible? Wouldn't that be great for next Sunday we're all worshiping with millions of other Christians in heaven around the throne? So is He going to come back and find us faithful, blowing the horn in the middle of the night because He's called us to? We end with the conqueror's promise. The last two verses. And we get our principle number five. God reassures the faithful with His secure and unending presence. God reassures the faithful with His secure and unending presence. Verse 12. The one who conquers, I will. Do you catch I will again? Get a little theme there. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. Stop there. The first thing he is bringing to mind is that he is giving a position of security. He's going to make them a pillar that will not topple. In earthquake country, that's pretty significant. Now, now, we saw on our trip to Israel, we saw a lot of toppled pillars because of because of earthquakes. But what was interesting is we saw them and everything else was destroyed. There was an idea of a permanence with a pillar. And God is saying to this little church that is stressed, that is under attack, that is struggling just to to serve Him. You'll be a pillar in my temple. A pillar in my presence. The temple represents the presence of God. There will be stability. You won't have to worry about earthquakes. You'll never go out of it. You won't have to worry about people excluding you. In the end, you will be with me and you will be part part of my temple. There's a place of prominence there. But you go on in verse 12, And I will write on him the name of my God. And when God wrote his name on something, or when anyone wrote their name on something, it was a sign of ownership or belonging. And so this is assurance that says, even though you're struggling, you are my people. And I love you. And nothing can change that. You belong to me. And that sense of belonging, that understanding of belonging to Christ allows us to try anything. It's encouraging to say, even in the small things, I'm going to continue. And the verse goes on, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. And as we've talked about, when you were on the name of a city, that meant you were a citizen of the city. And, and so here God is saying, you belong to me, but you belong to my kingdom, to the, the community of believers. You're not alone. And, and some of you are, are, are in such difficult situations that you feel so alone, but you have 200 other people right in this room right now that is part of God's kingdom. And we are community standing together. That's what Christ is referring to when he says, the name of my city. And finally, in my own new name, in my own new name, you will be my children. My abiding presence and relationship will be with you. What an incredible reassurance to a beleaguered church. Reassurance that we need today if we're struggling to know we are God's children and we belong to Him and it's His hand we can trust. God is more interested in faithfulness than success. I want to end by reading just a portion out of a book by D.A. Carson called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. And D.A. Carson is writing this book about his dad. His dad who was an ordinary pastor, never pastored in a megachurch, never pastored in a way that would be on TV or on the radio or anything like that. He was just an ordinary faithful pastor. And at the end, D.A. Carson ends with this. Tom Carson never rose very far in denominational structures, but hundreds of people testify how much he loved them. He never wrote a book, but he loved the book. He was never wealthy or powerful, but he kept growing as a Christian. Yesterday's grace was never enough. He was not a far-sighted visionary, but he looked forward to eternity. He was not a gifted administrator, but there is no text that says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you are good administrators. His journals have many, many entries bathed in tears of contrition. But his children and grandchildren remember his laughter. Only rarely did he break through this pattern of reserve and speak deeply and intimately with his children, but he modeled Christian virtues to them. He much preferred to avoid controversy than to stir things up, But his own commitments to historic confessionalism were unyielding, and in ethics he was a man of principle. His own ecclesiastical circles were rather small and narrow, but his reading was correspondingly large and expansive. He was not very good at putting people down, except on his prayer lists. When he died, there were no crowds outside the hospital no editorial comments in the papers, no announcements on the television, no mentions in Parliament, no attention paid by the nation. In his hospital room, there was no one by his bedside. There was only the quiet hiss of oxygen, vainly venting because he had stopped breathing and would never need it again. But on the other side, all the trumpets sounded. Dad won entrance to the only throne room that matters, not because he was a good man or a great man, He was, after all, a most ordinary pastor, but because he was a forgiven man. And he heard the voice of him whom he longed to hear, saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. God wants ordinary, faithful people because He is an extraordinary God and can do extraordinary things. Don't give up with whatever God has called you. Don't belittle it. Keep on keeping on and see what God can do through that. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, thank you for your your letter to the church at Philadelphia. A church that needed some encouragement. And I pray this morning that your words have encouraged us that you will do these things, that you will fight the battle. And what you ask of us is ordinary faithfulness. Steps of faith to follow you and what you are doing. And trust you with the results. Lord, I pray that you would do great things through Village. Not because we're great in numbers, not because we have a huge budget, but because we are willing to follow you wherever you lead. Lord, use us to do your work. We give you all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.